this morning through the book of James as we continue on through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning and welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. If you are just joining us for the first time, we are in the midst of a series on the book of James. And uh, James has been, uh, as some people have been kind of giving me a little bit of feedback, which thank you so much for, James is a difficult book because James does not pull any punches in regards to what it looks like to be somebody who follows Jesus. Right? So James is not going to deal with higher theological issues like uh, Paul would. He's not going to write a letter to uh, um, address suffering in, in different ways like Peter would. And he's certainly not going to kind of deal with the higher things like, like theology, like, uh, like John's gospel would. So James is more of a practical everyday. And that's kind of been my theme and for my backgrounds. James is kind of putting together the machinery of the behavior of what it means to be a Christ follower. Let's recap what we talked about last week. Last week was James chapter 3, and we kind of talked a little bit about um, a, a little, some aspects of our lives. In James chapter 3, James really wants to talk about our speech, our, our, our tongue. And he says that, dear brothers and sisters, now remember I said, whenever James says dear... Just buckle up, because he's, he's being nice at the beginning, but he's going to unpack something kind of difficult. So, dear brothers and sisters, not many of you should become teachers in the church, for we who teach will be judged more strictly. Indeed, we all make many mistakes, for if we could control our tongues, we would be perfect and could also control ourselves in every other way. Remember we talked about last week how in the ancient world, your speech, how you communicated yourself, was really a direct connection to your heart. What was in your heart came out through what you said. And remember, James's letter was the first letter to be distributed to the church as it was scattered across the Roman Empire. And what James is trying to help the church understand is how you communicate, how you speak, how you share what you are, who you are in Jesus. This tells a lot of people what's in your heart. And so James is trying to make the connection between speech and heart. And he does this, like, this, the heart issue, and when we get towards the end there, you're going to see this. But the heart issue is really what James wants to kind of reveal. What he's trying to teach us is our hearts can hide some pretty dark stuff. And James says, in suffering and temptation and in different parts of our lives, our hearts are revealed. And so what James is trying to say is that, listen, make sure you understand that what comes out of you, what you do, how you behave, this is all a direct connection to your heart. And then James kind of gives us the cure for our tongues, our speech, and he, sees, he uses the term wisdom. And remember, when James describes wisdom, wisdom looks a lot like Jesus. And that's interesting because James keeps connecting our behaviors, who we are, what we are, to Jesus. And so you can almost simplify it by saying, just live like Jesus did. Right? Now remember, and I, and I hate when I hear this, and I, I don't mean to say the word hate, but I really, it really bugs me when people say that Jesus was nice. Jesus was anything but nice. Right? Jesus was honest. And that honesty got him in a lot of trouble and you could almost uh, say that it actually ultimately got him killed, right? Je Jesus was honest. And what he was honest about is where the person was at and where they needed to go. So when the rich young ruler came to Jesus, Jesus said to him, just sell everything you have and follow me. But to Zacchaeus, he says, no, no, give this portion back and then you'll have the gospel. To others, it was different. Sometimes it was mercy. Sometimes it was grace. It was always honest, 
right? It was not nice in the sense of uh, placating them with a, you know, just say this one statement or just think about this profound thought. It was honest. And honesty, again, is difficult. And so when, G- when James is trying to say to us, okay, whatever we are, however we operate, we need to make sure that our speech isn't revealing this toxic stuff in our heart. Right, Because how we communicate, what we say, and again, we talked a little bit about this two weeks ago when we talked about this, it's not just what we say anymore, it's our social media, it's how we communicate, it's how we curate our, our online presence. This also communicates who we are. That's what we looked at a couple of weeks back. This morning we're going to continue on and we're going to be, look, we're going to be starting off in James chapter 4. But before we do that, let's talk about pleasure. The video this morning, and I'm going to come back to it in a second, was basically trying to tell us where does pleasure come from, right? Dopamine, right? And dopamine is so interesting. If you've ever worked with people who have addictions, if you've ever sat in a support group, people who have addictions, one of the things that addicts will tell you is what their addiction is trying to help them to do is chase the experience they had with the substance the very first time. So a drug user who has tried a substance for the first time has this incredible dopamine, this incredible high. And all they are trying to do from that point on is, is try to go back and get that high. I've sat with in, in 12-step groups as I've led them, as I've talked to these individuals, as I've worked with people who are uh, entangled in addictions. They just, they just want to get back to what they first had. But the problem is with dopamine, as the video told us in a very medical way, is dopamine creates tolerance. So your first hit of whatever substance you have, it will never be as high. The second time you use it, it'll be a little less. And so our brains say, well, we should take more. We should do more because we've got to get that high back. And so pleasure has become this, this, this cycle in our culture about we just need to chase after it, right? So for example, right, whether it's a vacation, whether it's Christmas, whether it's a gift, whether it's a concert, whether it's a food, right, you go and you experience these things and you just want that experience back again, but you can never get it back because it just, it's, it's always out of reach and so you keep chasing after it. Uh, Robert Lustig wrote a great article called The, Pers- the Pursuit of Pleasure in a modern- is a Modern Day Addiction. And he says this, too many of our simple pleasures have morphed into something else. A six and a half ounce soda becomes a 30 ounce big gulp drink. An afternoon with our friends, with friends gives way to 1,000 friendings on Facebook. Our ability to perceive happiness has been sabotaged by our modern incessant quest for pleasure, which our consumer culture has made all too easy to satisfy. Those who abdicate happiness for pleasure will end up with neither. Go ahead, pick your drug or device, pick your poison. Your brain can't tell the difference, but please be advised, it will kill you sooner or later, one way or another. And we see this right now in culture, right? We are trying to outdo ourselves in every aspect, right? We have a blockbuster movie. We're going to have even more of a blockbuster movie. We had this thing. We went to this concert. We had this. And it's like... We need more. And the reason we need more is because we have to excite ourselves. We have to give ourselves this pursuit of pleasure. Well, there's a term for this pursuit of pleasure and kind of what happens is called the hedonic treadmill. And uh, Jeanette Picknell talks about the hedonic treadmill this way. When Fyodor Dostoevsky wrote in The House of the Dead that man is a creature that can get accustomed to anything, he was talking about the cruelties and depravities, uh, deprivations of life in Siberian prison camp. But the human tendency to adapt or get accustomed to situations is more profound than Dostoevsky may have realized. A great pleasure repeated often enough becomes routine. 
And it takes an even greater treat to give us the same enjoyment. When we get used to having more, it takes more to please us. This is known as the hedonic treadmill. So the hedonic treadmill, this idea of hedonism, this idea of pursuit of pleasure, what she is saying and what we have found in studies is that this is, it's a treadmill. And of course, if you've ever gone on a treadmill, these devices of torture, which no one seems to like, yeah, people seem to kind of hop on in different ways, right? You're on a treadmill and you're moving, but you're not actually moving. You're expending a lot of energy, but you're actually, you know, you're not going anywhere, right? And she says, pleasure is like that. You are chasing something, but you are not moving forward. They call this the hedonic treadmill, that you keep going after something, but it never satisfies you. And what's interesting is, and the phrase I like the most in this was this, a great pleasure repeated often enough becomes routine. So for a, for a moment, if you can think back to the first time that you had Starbucks, well, first of all, it's terrifying because uh, what's a venti? What's a, uh, can I just have like a medium coffee? I'm, that doesn't mean it makes sense, right? So you have to kind of, they tell you, okay, this, this is the language, right? But if you can remember the first time you experienced something, like whether it's a coffee, whether it's uh, food, whether, whatever it would be, you think to yourself, oh, that was fantastic. And when you go back the next time for that next coffee, that next experience, it's like, mm, okay, it was okay. Next time I'm going to go get my coffee, I'm going to get a shot of espresso in it, or I'm going to get a shot of hazelnut in it, I'm going to sprinkle it with this, and I'm going to put this in it, and I'm going to have this, and I'm going to have a clown give it to me on a camel with a unicorn, and it's going to be amazing, right? We have to keep upping up our pleasure. And what is interesting is they call this the hedonic treadmill. We're chasing after pleasure, but we never seem to get it. But the pursuit never seems to die in us. We are always looking for, and we talked about this before, the bigger better, more. Bigger, better, more, right? You know, we used to have TVs that were the size of computer monitors. Now we have TVs the size of a wall. We used to have TVs that were, you know, it was a little fuzzy, but it's okay. But now we have TVs so crystal clear, they burn your retina by looking at them for too long, right? We, we, We just can't seem to get satisfied, right? In our pockets right now, many of us have smartphones, and these smartphones have more technological advancement than they did when the first moon, uh, moon landings took place. But yet, it's, it's more, right? Now we have a, a foldable phone. Now we have this kind of thing. Now this phone has 20 cameras, and this phone will, like, you know, pick up your mail for you. Not yet, but you get the idea, right? We are on this treadmill of experience, and um, you kind of see this a little bit in the church. So, uh, I'm, at a, I'm at this unique time in the church as far as being a pastor where I remembered, you know, 25 years ago going to a conference. And it was, it was as boring as you could imagine. The people, you know, had tables out and with books on it and there'd be a speaker and, and there, there may be a light of some sort, but that was about it. Now you go to a pastor's conference, there's like smoke machines. There's like guys with skinny jeans and really long beards and each booth has this and that. And it's like, wow, right? But you go to churches as well too. Like churches are, are, are these kind of hedonic treadmills too, right? You used to go to a church and there'd be like stained glass windows or there'd be pews and they'd be hard and they'd be wooden and everybody would move and creak and they're like no no that wasn't me and you know you 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 you, that that's what churches were but now you go there's like you know like an led screen and there's like lights and cameras i think it's perfect it's like it's this hedonic treadmill we need more experience because we just we're getting burnt out with pleasure well 
the reason I want to tell you this this morning is because James is now going to shift gears a little bit. And in James chapter 4, he's going to start off this next part of his letter, and he's going to address this problem of pleasure. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to James chapter 4. We're just going to be looking this morning at the first section. And just so you know, we only have, after this Sunday, we have two more weeks in the book of James, and we're going to wrap up in the book of James. So James chapter 4, verses 1 to 3 says this. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have so you can scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You only want, sorry, you, only, you want only what will give you pleasure. So James starts off this next part of the letter, and remember, James is going through different aspects of our Christian walk, our Christian life. Now, what's interesting here is the word that James uses for desires over there is a very specific word in the Greek language. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? Well, the word that James uses is called hedon, and of course, You see where I'm going with this, right? Because I'm not that subtle, right? Hedon is the root word of hedonism. It's pleasure, right? And in the Greek sense of this word, it is the pursuit of pleasure. What causes the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the pursuits of pleasure at war within you? This is how James starts off this next part here. Now, one of the things we have to realize is we can look at the Bible, we can look at the New Testament, and we say, well... Like, these are ancient people. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have, you know, online this. They didn't have all that. But yet, you have to remember, the Roman Empire was quite an interesting environment. Um, I came across a guy named Ray Lawrence. He wrote a book called Roman Passions, A History of Pleasure in Imperial Rome. And this is what he says. By the time the emperors, by the time of the emperors, the Romans had created the world's first global empire, stretching from Morocco in the west to Iraq in the east, from Scotland in the north to Egypt in the south. Around this empire flowed a treasure trove of goods from far-flung lands, slaves, spices, precious stones, and uh, colored marble, as well as an exotic array of foods and wines. From this bounty, the Romans created a culture of pleasure and a passion for sensations that stimulated all the human senses vision, hearing, smell, touch, and so on. A global world of pleasure had arrived. What we have to remember is first century Christians were not in some sort of desert, kind of nomadic, wandering through. That happened in the book of Exodus, right? They're in the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire was, as one historian put it, very sensual. The religions that the Romans loved were sensual. Right? The food they liked was sensual. The ways they participated and acted in some of these religions was very sensual. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make this PG or G as much as possible, but I need to let you know that when you read some of these histories on the Roman practices, it is very X-rated. If I can just say that as, as, as gently as I can here, and some people are like, well, I need to get back into history again. No, don't. Right? But the point is, the Roman Empire was sensual. And so these early Christ followers are going out into the Roman Empire and they are experiencing the senses of the Roman Empire. Like, remember, there isn't a culture up at this point in time, not the Babylonians, not the Egyptians, not the Assyrians, no culture up in this point in time had such a global spread of sensuality. Yes, the Babylonians were sensual, but they had only for this culture. And yes, the Egyptians were, and yes, the Assyrians were, and so on. But what the Romans did is it brought sensuality from all parts of the empire to Rome. 
And these early Christians are trying to navigate what it means to be a Christ follower immersed in this environment. And so when James is writing to them saying, listen, what is causing conflict within you? It's this pursuit of pleasure. And when he's saying it, he's not saying it in an arbitrary sense. He's saying it in a very real sense because these Christians are, being, are, are seeing and experiencing Roman culture even more raw than we do today in our culture. For the most part, well, the, the rawest we can get, and I say for the most part, it might be online. Or it might be visual on television or on movie or something like that, right? These people, it was around the corner from where they lived. This was not an abstraction. This was a reality. And so James shifts a little bit in regards to how he wants to teach. And he says, listen, you need to understand here that these pleasures that are all around you, they cause conflict within you. And as a matter of fact, the word that he uses is that at war within you. And I love that word. And I love that phrasing. What I've come to appreciate about James is he can paint a, a great picture. Like I know it seems like, like John's gospel, which is way more of an artistic gospel because John uses light and dark and he uses a lot more imagery to paint a picture of Jesus and who he was. But James is actually, his way of kind of describing the, uh, the Christian experience is very kind of, uh, there's some great metaphors in there. And he says, there's that war within you. Now, what's interesting about this is this guy named R.V.G. Tasker, his commentator, said this about it. What he asserts is that the human personality has, as it were, been invaded by an alien army, which is always campaigning within it. The The verb wage war implies that these pleasures are permanently on active service. And the expression in your members means that there is no part of the human frame which does not afford them a battleground. Human nature is indeed in the grip of an overwhelming army of occupation. The image is very savory. It's like there's an occupying army within you. And these are thoughts. These are, these are indulgences. These are experiences, right? And nothing plays better to the human character than pleasure. We love the experience of pleasure, right? You want to create an addiction? It's pleasure, right? It's, it's so interesting to me that how um, app developers today are, are engaging psychologists and people like that to say, how do we create this app? But let's make it even more addictive. And one of the things they've discovered was is if they can get you not to move from your phone. So just use your thumb to swipe left, swipe right, swipe up, swipe down, or scroll. They don't want you moving because as soon as you move your posture, you'll get off. So what they want to do is they want to freeze you and they want to use as little uh, movement as possible to engage in the content. And, and this is what psychologists are telling them. Like you want them to keep them in, online and engaged and scrolling and all that. Just get them moving one digit and that have them locked in for hours. And guess what? They're not wrong. Right? So pleasure is something that we as, as human beings, we wrestle with. And we don't just wrestle with it, but we also have to say that it is something that is a bit of a... Well, the phrase that I use is bait and switch. Let me show you why. In the first three verses, uh, James emphasized four times in, the first, in these verses that yielding to your sinful pleasures does not get you what you thought it would. He says, you lust and do not have. You are envious and cannot obtain. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive. Sin always makes enticing promises, and in the short run, it seems to deliver. But over the long haul, you come up empty and frustrated, if not totally destroyed. Sin is the ultimate bait and switch. You know, right? So you know what bait and switch is, right? A bait and switch is you buy something and then the person gives you something else. 
right? You think you're buying this high quality item and you actually get this. There's a really funny website that uh, shows these uh, online shopping fails where you see a dress or you see something and you order online, they send it to you and it's like, okay, this, this looks like it was made by a two-year-old, a nice two-year-old, I'm sure, but just, I did not pay for this, right? So there's this bait and switch. Well, James says that pleasure is a bait and switch. You want to experience something. You want to do something. And you go, oh, if I just did that, it would make me happy. And it might. But that happiness will not be sustained. And so sin is a bait and switch. And it's so much so that he mentions this kind of um, give and take, this kind of um, uh, giving away four times in the first part there. Now, if you remembered in the video we just saw, we talked about this idea of dopamine. Right? And what, what reason I showed you this video, because I had like a, quite a few to choose from, was this one phrase that kind of popped out, which really kind of you know, encapsulates exactly what James is saying. The more pleasure you seek, the more unhappy you get. This is counterintuitive, but this is biological. Right? The more pleasure you seek, the more you chase the hedonic treadmill, the more you go after things that will be pleasurable for you, entice you, engage the senses of whatever they would be the unhappier you will get. And what is interesting to me is this is something that I think is exactly what's happening today. James could be describing our present day culture. We have never been more inundated with pleasures, yet completely dissatisfied with all that we possess. There has never been a time that we have more access to anything that we could desire within affordability. Right? With the advent of Amazon, like Amazon is a game changer culturally. Right? Especially if you have Amazon Prime. Right? You click on something and the next day it arrives is just is astounding. And not only that, but you get to peruse the millions of items that it has to offer you, right? Whether it's Amazon or eBay or whatever it be. We have now been engaged in such a culture that we have access to whatever we want. And nothing satisfies us. It's never enough, right? We seem to want more and more, right? There's a new electronic device. There's a new clothing. There's a new movie. There's a new this. There's new that. We just want more because nothing satisfies. Why? Because pleasure is dissipates. It's a bait and switch, right? Your body says to you, um, this is how you do it, but this is actually not what you get for it. Uh, a friend of mine, um, he was a little... Uh, he was a little overweight, and so he started this. Uh, he he uh, he went to this. Uh, it, it was kind of a support group for people who were struggling with their weight. And I saw him uh, a few months back, and he had just lost a ton of weight. And I'd noticed on Facebook that he had kept it off for a while. So I said to him, "You know, so what was it? What what kind of connected with you with this group?" And he said, "The thing that was most." Uh, profound for me, and he's speaking to his own experience, was he says that what the thing the group teaches you is that when you sit down for a meal, you think that this meal is going to be a 10, but it's really more of a 6 or a 5. But you eat like it's a 10. Like you sit down for a meal, like, oh, I'm going to have lots of it because it's going to be the best meal. It's going to be a 10. And he says, well, most meals are a 5 or 6. You know, they're, they're okay. You know, they're not great, but they're not like, you know, toe you, uh, curl your toes good type of thing, right? And so he says, eat like it's a 5. So I don't overeat anymore. I don't overorder anymore. I don't have a full plate anymore because it's only going to be a five. It's going to be a six. It's not going to be a 10. And what, what basically he was trying to teach himself and self-talk himself was is the pleasure index in his mind thinks it's going to be a 10. And he's like, no, no, it's actually more of a five. So let's, let's operate like it's a five. 
so that I don't have to have like two plates or I don't have to have a large plate or all these things. It says, I'm just going to treat it like it's a five. And for him, what was actually kind of the helpful uh, um, part of his brain that connected to it was this pleasurable experience is not going to give you what you think it's going to give you. So don't treat it like it's the be all end all. And so what James is telling us is pleasure can be that way for us, that it can be at war within us. But it's not just that part, though, because now look at what he says in verse 4, because now James is going to kind of show us something that really, it's, it's the revelation of where pleasure is actually coming from. So James is in verse 4 of this. He says, you adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. James responds to our hedonism by pointing out the root of our divided loyalties. Look at the word he uses when he says, when he talks about pleasure, the pursuit of pleasure, he uses the phrase adulterers, which is kind of interesting because he could be, he could say, you, you addicts, right? You, those of you who are addicted, right? Because he's talking about pleasure. But James realizes what we have forgotten, that it's not about the pleasures themselves. It's about what they reveal about our hearts. Why? Because James is always interested in what's in our hearts. And what James sees as the pursuit of pleasure, the hedonic treadmill, the pursuit of all these pleasures to indulge yourselves, he says it's actually adultery. Because he now sets for us this, this two uh, ideas. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. So all of a sudden, James has this dichotomy placed down before us. He says, I'm going to start off talking about pleasure, hedone. But what I really need to show you is it's not about the pleasure. Because James is not asking us to go live in a cave. Like we can experience pleasure. But James is saying is pleasure can actually be a God to you. And when you pursue that God, that God is going to not give you anything that it promises. But it's always going to entice you for more. And so James says here, you're actually an adulterer. And not because you are participating in adultery as in the physical act of being married and having a relationship outside of that, but adultery to James is divided loyalty. He says, you know what? God calls us to something higher, something more profound, something more simpler, something that is within this world that, 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 that kind of manages our pleasure, our dopamine and our serotonin. But the world is all about dopamine. It's all about pleasure and wants you to pursue it. So he says, you're actually an adulterer. You're cheating on God with the world. Right? And, and that's kind of interesting because when I looked at that, I thought to myself, he shifts gears a little bit. But what James is, he's very insightful. And I don't know, we, again, we don't know enough of James's history, his upbringing and, and all of that, to know where he got this insight from. But he seems to have this idea of saying, you know what? You can experience the world, you can be in the world, but you don't have to be of the world. And again, he's hearkening back to John chapter 17 with Jesus in the garden. But James says, listen, if you continue to pursue the pleasures of the world, this is actually the antithesis, this is the opposite of pursuing God. And actually, what's actually kind of interesting, and one of these days I'm going to do a series on this, but... One of the things that the early church had and had for several hundred years, actually still has today, was this idea of the monastic movement. When I say monastic, you think of monks, you think of robes. But in the early church, it was all about uh, refraining from pleasures. It was a way to control pleasures. And the way you control pleasures are is by saying, I don't want it anymore. Right? So, for example, Easter is coming up and there's something called Lent. 
And people will say, I gave it up for Lent. And that's great. And we're going to talk about that at UCC. We're going to talk about the whole um, Easter experience, what Lent has, right? Because we don't come from a liturgical background, but there's some great insights in that. But when people say, I gave it up for Lent, what they're really meaning is, I'm going to take this pleasure and I'm going to set it aside so that I can show God that nothing controls me. Nothing controls me, right? Nothing is going to dominate my experiences more than God himself. Now, that has gotten lost in Lent. That's gotten lost in the conversation. But it's setting aside a pleasure for something more. In the early church, they did that. They would say, I'm going to give up this pleasure. I'm going to give up this pursuit because I don't want it to, A, infect me, make me an adulterer. But B, I also want to show God that nothing in my life is going to control me, right? What is an addiction? An addiction is something that becomes your be-all, end-all. You talk to a drug addict of uh, uh, whatever substance, they will tell you that all they can think about is their next hit. That's all they can think about is, is, that, is that the entire world lives around them, but it's really kind of fades off into the distance to this one moment of experience in this head. And, they, and again, not just substances. It could be a whole variety of things. James says what happens here is our heart actually makes us adulterers. It divides our loyalties. You can either pursue the world and all that it has to offer, which again is the bait and switch, or you can pursue God and what he has to offer. Now, verse 5 is actually kind of interesting. And I'm going to have to take some time to unpack it. Because James says something. And depending on your translation in your Bible, you're going to have a whole bunch of different things here. Because James is going to talk about um, a little bit about God's jealousy. And we have to unpack what that means. Because God's jealousy is, an, is, a, uh, is a difficult topic. But it's an important one. So in verse 5, in the NLT version, which is what I tend to use most for my Sunday morning teaching, it says this. Do you think that scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate. That the spirit ha- he has placed within us should be faithful to him. Dave Pennington, uh, a New Testament commentator, said this about verse 5. Many consider James 4, 5 to be one of the most difficult passages to interpret within the entire epistle. Some believe it is one of the most difficult verses to interpret within the entire New Testament. Because in the Greek, what happens in the Greek, and again, I don't want to unpack this too much because who cares? Um, But in the Greek, um, sentence structure doesn't work the way we do. So when we say a sentence, we start off and we kind of work way through it. In the Greek, depending on the on the tense of the word, it can actually change the structure around. And in this passage in verse 5 of chapter 4, this structure is actually kind of mishmashed a little bit, so it's difficult to ascertain what emphasis James wants. The NRSV version actually has the closest to the literal translation of what James is trying to say, and this is what it says here. Or do you suppose that it is for nothing that Scripture says God yearns jealousy, jealously for the spirit that he has made to dwell within us? So in this passage, there's a couple things. One is whatever spirit God's placed within us, and the second is God's jealousy. Now, before we move on, we have to talk about God's jealousy. When we think of attributes to give to God, we think love, we think mercy, we can think anger, we can think many things, and we can kind of, we can, in our minds, we can kind of go, okay, this makes sense, right? A merciful God, a loving God, yeah, I get that. An angry God, I see that as well too, but a jealous God? Jealousy seems like one of those things where you're like, 
I don't know how to attribute that to God. I don't know how to say God is jealous because when I think of jealousy, I think of a crazy ex-boyfriend or girlfriend, right? I think of, uh, I think of a relationship that's really toxic. I think of something that is really uh, unhealthy. That's what I think of when, when I think of jealousy. And what you're really saying is this is what I think of when I think of human jealousy. But so let's take a look at how we think of a biblical jealousy or God's jealousy. The root idea in the Old Testament word jealous is to become intensely red. It seems to refer to the changing color of the face or the rising heat of the emotions, which are associated with intense zeal or passion over something dear to us. In fact, both the Old and New Testament words for jealousy are translated zeal, but Being jealous and being zealous are essentially the same thing in the Bible. God is zealous, eager about protecting what is precious to him. Let's pause there for a second. So when we see the word jealousy as applied to God, we think of a negative human emotion and absolutely we get, that's that's our only basis for understanding it. But in the Bible, when the Bible uses jealousy, a better translation is God's passion. That God cares about us, loves us so much that he's not willing to share us with anyone. And so jealousy is actually this idea of passion. God's jealousy isn't about the negative emotions of anger and envy. It is his passionate pursuit of our relationship with him. God's jealousy or zeal shows our value to him and his commitment to us. Uh, Mark Batterson, who wrote um, a lot of great books, and the one I'm thinking about right now is Escaping Me, Circle, prayer, prayer circle, circling, I don't know. Anyways, Mark Batterson wrote a great book on prayer, and there's circle in the title there somewhere. You can figure it out. But he wrote this article on, on why is God jealous, and I think he actually brings up something kind of important here. He says this, you can't really appreciate the mercy of God if you don't understand the wrath of God. And if you don't have a handle on the justice of God, then you aren't going to appreciate the grace of God. In a nutshell, if you don't understand one, you can't appreciate the other. When it comes to love and jealousy, I think many of us don't appreciate the jealousy of God because we don't understand the love of God. He goes on to say this. So, so what, is that, what is it that provokes his jealousy? It is anything that diverts our attention or our affection to someone or something else. Anything that displaces God is an idol and is those idols that God hates. See, jealousy is really a longing for intimacy and relationship. And of course, in a human context, it is never seen in a good way, right? If you refer to a spouse, to a boyfriend, to a girlfriend, or somebody in your life as being jealous, it's usually a, a negative thing. But if you can get below that to the surface of it, what you're really saying is, I don't want to share your affections with anyone else. And if you're with somebody who is not passionate about that with you, you should probably not be with them. Right, because jealousy and, and this longing to be uh, have that 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 relationship in, a, in, in an intimate way is actually part of the human experience. Right, like if if I um, went out and I was gone all the time for my wife, and she didn't get to see me or didn't get to talk to me, and you have to understand, my wife and I we talk a lot, not physically, but we text a lot. And, you know, she's one of those textures, well, I'll respond, and then she'll respond again, and then you'll see the bubble. She's, I'm like, no, no, just slow down. Okay, I, I have to respond, and, and then I respond to something that's a five ones down. She's like, what does that mean? I'm like, it's actually, if you go back up to the text here, it's this one here. Just give me a second to respond before you keep 
we're, in other words, we're very communicative. And, and that's, that's how we roll, right? But for, if my wife is working, and she's working today, and she's a nurse, and so her, 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 as a nurse, she's meant to be uh, caring because she works on maternity about babies. So if she's texting me all day long, I'm worried that some baby is not getting, getting taken care of, right? And so, you know, like, I'm like, sweetheart, I love you, but shouldn't you be taking care of, you know, some little lizard or something like that? Like, don't you need to go? They're not lizards, but some of them look like it. Anyways, um, the idea is that, you know, but the other day, um, I was delivering milk, and she was working at the hospital. And so at the end of the day, so when I'm delivering milk, I'm like driving a truck, so obviously I don't text and drive. And, uh, and she's working. So at the end of the day, she, she sends me this kind of sad face emoji and says, you haven't texted me all day. And she's right. I was busy. She was busy. It's just one of those things. And the idea is that I miss you. And when you want to think of God's jealousy, just remember, it's God saying he misses you. That's how God's jealousy is seen in context. Now, of course, there, and again, because I'm, uh, my brain works this way, I always think of a point, but I think of the counterpoint, and that's overly possessive, right? Like, that's not God saying either. God's saying, listen, I've given everything for you. I sent my son for you. I've given you my Holy Spirit. I've given you everything. I love you. I love you more than any human being will ever love you. And what he's meaning to say to us, and what jealousy means to us, is that he just misses us. Because you're befriending the world, you're befriending pleasures of the world, and you're forgetting about him. And so in James chapter 4, he, again, he, James takes this uh, adultery uh, uh, train a little bit further and says, you know what? In adultery, there's, there's two parties, right? The one who commits the adultery and the one who is, who is being, the adultery is committed to in, in the relationship. And what he's saying is that God is being, you're cheating on God with the world. And God is jealous, he is passionate, but more importantly, he misses you. So James is trying to connect this idea of our pursuit of pleasure with that as well. Now look at verses 6 and 7. And he gives grace generously, as the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. James believes that humility is the answer to our wandering hearts. What is it about humility? And the word humility pops up through James a lot. James believes that pride will take us away from God. What does a proud person feel? Well, at the height of arrogance and pride is, I don't need God, I am God. Right? That's what pride is. At its very core, it is separation. Um, Soren Kierkegaard James Philosopher, a guy I read, I never understand, and I have to read like a dozen times. But he has one thing I really like about him. He, when he defines sin, right? Like sin can be defined as, and I mentioned this before, as um, missing the mark, missing God's mark, right? And that's how most people say, or breaking God's law. But Soren Kierkegaard, he defines sin as building our identity on anything besides God. So in other words, God is what are, supposed to be the foundation of who we are, and we build upon that. And in that foundation is grace and a mercy, but it's also justice and what is true and what is right and what is wrong. And Kierkegaard says that sin is when we start building our identity on something that's not God. And the reason I like that so much is because what that tells us is that if we are basing our identity upon God, the response is humility. Because how can you take pride for your salvation when you realize you didn't earn it? How can you take pride for what happens in your life when you realize um, you don't deserve it? And then not only that, though, but in our brokenness and our sinfulness and the things that we do and the things that we, how we behave in the world, we are also realizing we are broken. 
We need God's mercy. We need his grace because we fall, we fail. And that's why James says, and he gives grace generously. Generously. It's not like God says, well, fine, I'll forgive you this one time. But if you do it again, you're going to get a zit. Or if you do it again, you're going to lose your hair. Or you do it again, you're going to lose a job. Or you're going to lose a lace Or you're going to have, like, we have all these kind of things in our head that we go, well, you know, God can forgive me up to this point in time. Or God can love me up to this point, uh, up to this experience. But that's not what God says about himself, right? It says he gives us grace generously. Now, look at the first part of, of, of verse 8. Come close to God, and God will come close to you, right? Action, reaction. What's the initial action? We draw close to God. And then what's God's reaction? He draws close to us. See, this is what's interesting about God. We think of God in ways that we are chasing after this infinite presence, this infinite consciousness, and however you want to describe it. But the Bible tells us that when we take one step towards God, he takes one step towards us. That in your life, that as you go out in the world and experience the world, that you can, you can do and you can say and you can behave, you can have all these times, and you realize that all you're doing is basically kind of drifting away from God. And yet at the very end of that, the bait and switch of pleasure, the bait and switch of sin, we, we are left empty and hollow. And the Bible tells us as soon as we turn back to God, he's right there. Draw close to God, and he will draw close to you. It's action, it's reaction, right? Because God hasn't left us. And that's the part that messes with our, main, our minds the most, is that in the midst of our sin, the midst of the times that we are most ashamed, embarrassed, the most uh, despondent in what we've done, what we've behaved, what we've experienced, what we've seen, what we've, what we've said, God's right there. And the only reason God can draw close to us when we draw close to him, because he's never left us. He's never left us because it's, it's, it actually, it helps us in our brains to think that God is not with us when we're doing the things that we do. But the Bible tells us as we draw close to God, he draws close to us. And the reason he draws close to us is because he's never left us. And so James says that when we talk about adultery, we talk about jealousy, right? The, like any relationship, any healthy relationship has the ability to apologize for making mistakes, Relational breakdown is when you're so entrenched in your own opinion, your own posture, that you have no mercy for the other, when you're realizing that you need mercy yourself. And so what James is saying is, in the relational connection with God, right? Remember, he talked about adultery. He's talked about jealousy. Now he's saying, listen, in a relationship, you draw close to God, he will draw close to you. And in and, 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 and a human relationship, it's the first person to apologize wins. The first person to apologize wins. And what they win, they win humility. They win graciousness and they win mercy because they're the first one to say, you know what? It takes two to fight and I'm fighting and I'm sorry for my part in it. And of course, we're like, ah, our, our pride is in the back of our heads going, you idiot, don't do that. Don't, don't give in. Just stay angry because you're justified. You're self-righteousness. And it's like, no. Humility teaches us that when we apologize, when we extend mercy, we receive mercy. And when we turn back to God, God turns back to us. Now look at the second part of verse 8. 
Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Again, loyalty divided is this constant theme that comes up through the book of James. Much of James deals with the truth of who we are. Our behavior reveals our belief. Our hearts can hide what we really are. Loyalty is a choice, a daily decision of what we really want. Remember back in chapter 1? Their loyalty is divided. Who's he talking about? Us. Loyalty seems to come back to James time and time again. Because what James is saying is, listen, your behavior, your works, your actions, your thoughts, your deeds, all show you, all show the world, show yourself, show God who you're loyal to. And so James keeps bringing it back up. Now look at verse 9. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Imagine a Hallmark card like this. Could you imagine? Like, James, aren't you supposed to say to us that God loves you, he's going to hug you, he's going to embrace you, he's going to forgive you. And James is like, yes, but you got to learn your lesson. You got to experience it because if you don't, you'll do it again. Right? And this is, this is the part of our brains that we hate the most. Like, of course we want to talk about God's love and God's forgiveness, but we also have to talk about the consequences. And what James is saying here in this one passage at verse 9, after everything he's just gone through, he's saying, listen, you need to understand something. God loves you and he's going to forgive you. But sin hollows us. Sin breaks us. Sin is the bait and switch. And you have to experience that because if you don't, you'll just do it again. Whenever we talk about addictions, whenever you deal with an addict, there's a phrase that's always used. And the funny thing about this phrase is no one really understands what it means, but we always say it. It's like, well, they have to hit rock bottom. Nobody knows what rock bottom is until you hit rock bottom. I've dealt with addicts before and they've lost their job. Well, that's rock bottom. No, no, no. That's not it for them yet. They, They still have more pain they're willing to take for this addiction. And so what happens with rock bottom for an addict is simply this. The pain is greater than the, the, the high. That is rock bottom. And nobody can put that formula together in practical terms. How do I know when your pain is greater than the addiction that you love? How do I know an alcoholic has finally gotten to the point where it goes, okay, this alcohol is not worth all of this. And people live on the streets. People live in absolute filth and squalor. And they still haven't hit rock bottom. But what James is saying is when you hit rock bottom with sin, and you will, because sin works that way, acts that way, lives that way, this is your response. Humility is is, is born out of these behaviors. Remember how James starts his letter? Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of all kinds, trials and temptations of all kinds. And again, nobody feels joy in those moments. But James says the reason we feel joy is because we experience our need for God. Sometimes suffering and, 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 and our brokenness, it serves as a reminder of how desperately we need Jesus. And this is why Western Christianity is dying, is because the affluent don't need God. If you have a house, you have a, have you have a job, you have a car, you have a relationship, why do you need God? It's usually only in tragedies that we realize, oh, I'm not God. Because this thing, this, this doctor's thing, this relational thing, this job thing, whatever it be, has knocked me off of my perch I've created for myself. And my ego and my pride are now destroyed. And what replaces it, if we allow it to? Humility. Consider it pure joy, 
when James says it, is not joy because of what's going on in your life. It's joy because you remember you need God. And that is joyful. Because when we draw close to God, he draws close to us. Let me wrap this up here. I'm going to say that I still have two slides, so relax. Um, Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. See, just as sin has a bait and switch, here's pleasure, but here's pain that comes along with that pleasure, right? Because the pleasure of sin always has a cost. It's hidden, but it's always there. James says the opposite of what God is. God says the more you humble yourself, the more you take that piece of yourself, your ego, your pride, your arrogance, all these things of our lives that want to alienate ourselves from God, separate us from God, the more you take those things and you sacrifice them before God, the more God can use you. See, God doesn't want the qualified. He doesn't want the affluent. He doesn't want the proud. He, uh, the, uh, the prideful. He doesn't want the rich. He doesn't want the celebrities. He doesn't want those people. He just wants the humble. Because the humble will do as he asks. Why? Because they believe that, that having God in their lives is the greatest gift. The proud, the arrogant, the wealthy, the affluent, those who have everything in the world, they will resist God. Right? The gospel is good news for the humble. It is very bad news for, the, for those who have pride, for those who have everything. That's why Western Christianity, cultural Christianity is dying. Because we have not let go of our pride yet. And this is why, whether it's in sub-Saharan Africa, whether it's the Chinese underground church in Latin America, and, and the Middle East, my goodness, what's going on in the Middle East right now, these people have abandoned their pride. They've abandoned their sense of control, and they've said, Lord, whatever it is. And if it's you ask me to lay my life down for the gospel, absolutely. We can't even get up to church in the morning. We can't even, we can't even get, we can't even like pray for a few minutes during the day. We can't even, like, there's so many things that inhibit just even the barest minimal essentials of what it means to be a Christ follower today in Western Christianity. And there's people just saying, you know what, Lord, take everything because you are worth it. You are worth it. You are worth everything. You're worth every trial, your every temptation, every degradation. The world looks at us and makes fun of us and mocks us. And this is why I think if you're a Christian, you become a celebrity. You just let yourself in a trap because the world has questions for you. Well, why not this? Why not that? And the response should be, well, it's what God says. Or this is how God asks me to live my life. But instead, it's like, well, no. And just, well, uh, and if, well, I don't know. Well, maybe it's like you can't, you, you, you just can't embrace the world and God. It doesn't work. And Christian celebrities are just, uh, and, and I say Christian celebrities, I mean like whether it's athletes or actors or actresses or whoever they would be, like they just, they, they walk a tightrope. I feel bad for them. I do. Because you've got people asking questions that are just loaded. And some of them are not that bright. And so they just don't have the answers. It's like, ah. And of course, the, the, the media, oh, we tripped them up. Oh, see. It's like, ah. Right? But who does God want? The humble. In John's letter, he kind of describes it this way, and I kind of feel like John read James's letter before he kind of wrote his letter. Now, remember, John's letter is written towards the end of his life. John's letter is written from the Isle of Patmos. He's in exile, and John is the last surviving disciple. Not only that, though, we think, we can't prove this, but historically we believe that John might be one of the last eyewitnesses of, of, of who Jesus was and his miracles. 
By the time John's writing his letter, there's a generation of Christians growing up that Jesus is now displaced as a story, kind of like us, right? But John's like, that's why in John's letter, he's like, I've seen it. I've, I've, I've touched Jesus. I've experienced him. I, I'm not just telling you this from secondhand or thirdhand. I've seen it. So John's letter is very tactile because he wants this next generation growing up that this is, this is what it means to be a Christ follower. And in John's letter, he says this. Do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, hedone. A craving for everything we see and a pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from the world. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. John makes a connection that's so important. He says, listen, pleasure, oh, it's so enticing. It's so fun. And it just, it feels great. But it will fade. And it will cost you. It will cost you greater than you realize. And because of that, you need to understand the world and what it has to offer is the exact opposite of what God has to offer. Let's bow our heads. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. We are celebrating communion this morning. And so we're just going to, change the service around a little bit. So the worship team is going to come back up. And as they are doing so, as we do every week, your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. We want to provide an opportunity for a reflection. It's so important for a uh, time to say, Lord, have I been produce, have I been pursuing the hedone, the pleasures of this world? Or am I pursuing you more? Have I been an adulterer? And by adultery, I mean, have I been loving the world more than I love you? And this is a question that no one can answer for you except you yourself. James is not saying that we have to be monks. But James is saying that our hearts can't be divided from God. It's an important distinction, but it's one that we need to embrace, and especially in the culture that we live in. We live in a very Roman culture, Pleasures from around the world are ours to experience. And there's nothing wrong with good food and friends and these things. Of course not. But James says that when these supplant our relationship with God, we become spiritual adulterers. And in that is death. In that is spiritual death and perhaps even physical death. So in this moment, there's just a reflection. Just please take the opportunity to think about that. Because... Until we are able to say to the Lord, God, whatever it is you want from me, whatever it is you want to take from my hand, and oh, I got to tell you guys, even as I say that, a little fear trickles up and back. My back is like, oh, because we can be so lazy. We can be so pleasure-seeking. And God's like, this will not create within you humility. This will not create within you the posture that's necessary for what God wants. And he is jealous. He is passionate. He just misses us. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you came to walk amongst us human beings. You left the glory of heaven to be with us as human beings. And you let us spit upon you. You let us reject you. You gave us the choice. You drew us in with your truth, but you gave us the choice. Lord, this morning, you have given us the choice as well, too. And God, for anyone in this room here that perhaps may have, without realizing it, 
have been living a life of spiritual adultery. Lord, for them I pray, as James says, that God gives grace generously, that he forgives, that as we draw close to you, God, you draw close to us. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just be here this morning, that as we continue with the rest of the service, as we have some time of worship and, and communion, which is a perfect symbol of your grace and mercy to us, I pray, God, that we would just have that rise up within us. Holy Spirit, speak to us. Make us alive once again. Fan into flame the, the pursuit and the zeal for the things of the Lord. God, I thank you that you are merciful and gracious. And that you forgive us time and time again, even beyond what we understand. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just renew that right spirit with us. In Jesus' precious name, amen.